0: Um, all right, if you will join me on the screen or on the back of your bulletin, um, we're going to be reading from Luke 10 this morning. Uh, Luke 10:25. and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time that we can gather in your presence this morning um, and worship you in song and in fellowship um, and in listening to your word. Lord, I just pray that you would be with Brian this morning. um, Speak through him. um, Open our ears and our hearts to hear um, and be changed by what you have for us this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.
1: Thank you. All right. Good morning, everyone. We are in um, week three of our three-week short series about why we exist as a church. And we said week one that we exist to encourage and equip people to live in Christ, that Jesus uses the picture of a fruit tree that our lives are to abide in him. Um, We are to be grafted into the life of Christ, and that when we do that, we will bear fruit. Last Sunday we talked about um, living together in community and a different metaphor that Peter uses is that our lives are to be as living stones and that our lives fit and touch together so we are aware of when people are hurting, aware of when people have positive and good things happen in life, that our lives touch in that way, that we are um, known amongst one another This morning, uh, part three is that we exist as a church for others, that we are um, interested in learning what it means to be a true and genuine neighbor, that we don't exist just to gather amongst ourselves and to have um, worship services, but we are others oriented, that there is a part of our life that we care about people in our neighborhood, and so each each piece of, uh, of why we exist is, is foundational. And so this morning we will focus on the idea of what does it mean to be a neighbor. Uh, we learn uh, throughout the Bible in many places that we have to be on guard about being a Christian club. That we can easily grow into um, enjoying Gathering together and having larger gatherings and and enjoying the singing and good talks and Bible studies and prayer like all of those things are important. But if we are not others oriented, we are missing out on something significant. I'm gonna push it down a little bit. Um, Isaiah chapter one, I think we have this on the screen here, um, reminds us of this, and here's what the prophet Isaiah says. And uh, you can follow along. He says this. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. And then here's what he says that we are to be people who learn to do good, who seek justice, who help the oppressed, who defend the cause of the orphans, and fight for the rights of widows. And so there is a clear mandate that the church is never to function as a Christian club. And unfortunately, Um, part of our American culture is we love enthusiasm. We love the gathering of large crowds. Um, We hear about this all the time. If you pay attention to news, everyone likes a large crowd. But if we are thoughtful followers of Christ, we will be aware that that is not the primary purpose. And the primary purpose, we learn is this, and that that the church is to be an outpost. And if I can put my sermon in one sentence this morning, um, here's what I want us to think about. That the church is to be an outpost of the kingdom of God that functions as a model and an agent of compassion and social concern. So two pieces, a model of compassion. How are we doing with that one? With one another? Is the Kelly family a family that models compassion towards one another? Is your family a family that models compassion? Is our church community a community that models compassion for one another? Or are we quick to criticize, quick to condemn, quick to notice what people are not doing, quick to point out people's flaws? And so if we are, we need to go back to step one which says that we are to live our lives in Christ, that we are to abide in Christ. It's difficult to be critical and judgmental, to be a gossip, to be one who uh, points out flaws when you're living your life in Christ. But the other piece of this is that we are to be an agent. That means that we are to be people who go out, that we're not to be people that just are focused on ourselves. And so for us to function as a church the way we intend, there has to be a willingness to open our eyes and our ears to those who are hurting. And so this morning, when we look at the story of what's known as the Good Samaritan, uh, we hope to look at, look at it with thoughtful eyes and maybe um, a willingness to look at it with a fresh perspective because the temptation is, if you've been around church for a while, that when you hear the words, the Good Samaritan, you think of, let's just all leave and be nice to each other, and life will be great. And I think that misses um, the main point, and I'll show it to you, and, and then you can make uh, your own choice. But here's what Jesus says. We're not going to read it all again. I'm going to read just a few pieces, and we'll, we'll stop along the way. So question number one is this. What do you need to be an authentic neighbor. What do you need to be a genuine neighbor? What do you need to be in order to be a person that is not so self-focused and so self-absorbed that you can open your eyes and be aware of what people are going through? So let's start with the context. The context is this. Verse 25 says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. So the word lawyer here can be a little bit misleading. Um, A lawyer, in this sense, is a Bible scholar. So the Old Testament, as some of you know, has over 600 laws. And this person, this man, would have been an expert in that. And he's going to set a trap. He's trying to set a trap to test Jesus to justify himself. And so he says this. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a, that's a fine question. That's a great starting point. And how many of us even ask this question? Is this a worthwhile question for us to ask? Well, we could probably say there's probably no other question that is more important than this question. And I do know that we are easily captured with the temporary things, with the things of this world, and asking the eternal harder questions is something that we tend not to wrestle with? So let's pause for just a moment as the teacher and Jesus do and think about this question. Eternal life. And the teacher, <clears throat> the Jewish teacher here, in, in his conversation with Jesus, admits the reality of an eternality of heaven and hell, that there is that. And this Jewish man wants to inherit eternal life. And so we pause for a moment and think about that for our own lives. And I invite you to consider that and to wrestle along with Jesus and this man about this question. And so then he says this He says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And so this man is brilliant. Of all the 600-plus laws, how do you explain it? How do you summarize this many laws? And he does it perfectly so. And the answer is, you shall love. We can summarize all 614, 600-plus laws of the Old Testament with those three words, you shall love. And so he answers it correctly, that you shall love God fully, that you should give God your full, undivided attention, your full, undivided love, that we are, as people are created to live that way, to love God fully. And then he says, the second part, and that first part, if you've heard of the word the Shema, that is a part of a Jewish prayer taken from the Old Testament, where even today it is repeated twice a day, listen, hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. The second part is from the book of Leviticus, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can stop and think about that for a second. There are many things in the Bible that just sound nice, that are short, they're pithy, they're easy to, to grab. But when we honestly and um, wrestle and think about that, that I am to care about people in a way that I just... Reflexively care about myself. And then this is the the rubbing point of this conversation that he has with Jesus. And Jesus commends him. He says, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But as many conversations that we find in the Gospels with Jesus, the man has to kind of have one little follow-up, smart-aleck, kind of like little comment question like some of us would do, kind of get the last word in. And he says this, but he, and this is the key, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So what we learn this beginning Paragraph, this beginning part, is that Jesus wants to teach this man that it is impossible for any of us to do this. That every one of us is in need of mercy. Everyone is in need of grace. That none of us love God fully. That none of us love one another as we love ourselves. Jesus is going to make the point and is making the point in this section. That the problem with these words is the human heart. That we are incapable of loving the way Jesus describes. And in order to make the point, the story is reversed. It's flip-flopped. And this is how Jesus is going to help this man understand that we are all in need of grace. The story would go according to plan if the person in the ditch was the Samaritan and the Jewish man is the hero because the man could then say, yes, here is a, a, a Jewish pious man offering compassion and mercy. But Jesus intentionally reverses the story to completely disrupt his way of thinking to show and prove his need for grace. That's what Jesus is teaching. Here's what the man has not yet learned is this, that pride looks down on people, but love gets down with people. The man was stuck with pride of condemning, of looking down on people. He had not yet learned that what is needed is a new heart, And that new heart then empowers you to love and to get down with people where you find them. I've shared this before. It's been a long time, but years and years ago when uh, Karen and I and the boys drove up to Washington to visit my mom, we were driving along the Hood Canal, curvy part of the road, and we came across a car in the ditch. And standing next to their car was a young couple. And... uh, the boys were very little at this time, and so I, I, we pulled over, and I walked up to them. And I, this, uh, 10 plus years ago, I walked up to them, and I quickly just noticed by looking at them that, um, maybe we'll use the word disheveled, um, they, they had all of the appearances of, of, of struggling with addictions. And I'll... Maybe I can summarize it this way. This part of Washington was a rural part of Washington where certain drug addictions were very common and and very serious. And and we've heard about this, about drug epidemics in rural parts of America. Get out, approach them. And the guy stuck out his hand. And it is amazing to me that the human mind can function. I don't know how long it takes to stick out your hand and shake somebody's hand, like a second and a half. But I quickly noticed just by looking at him and his hands and the dirt and the length of his nails and his personal hygiene, a flash of a second was, I don't want to touch this guy. (laughs) And I don't know, it's kind of amazing like what God can do in a fraction of a second from shaking somebody's hand in this little flash of a second, this internal battle of, do I want to touch this person who was obviously not clean and not healthy and and him and his girlfriend had taken their parents' car? I don't remember all the details, but to love well, if we're honest, is challenging. It's hard. And I know some of you um, are germaphobes And giving a a disheveled, unclean person is not really your thing. Some of you would walk right up to him and give him a huge hug and it would be no big deal. But the point of this introductory conversation is this, is that pride looks down on people. And if you want to be a neighbor, you need a new heart. You first have to experience the grace of Jesus. I've got a great book here that has some really interesting things. Let me show you the attitude that... Um, this Jewish man most likely would have had towards a Samaritan. All right? this, is, this is from um, Sirach. Sirach is a, um, so a wisdom literature written by a Jewish rabbi a, many, many, a long, long time ago, and talking about Jewish culture this time. And here's what he says. This is interesting. If you do a good thing, know for whom you are doing it, and your deeds will not go to waste. Do good to a devout man, and you will receive a reward. If not from him, then certainly from the Most High. Give to a devout man. Do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man. Give nothing to a godless one. Refuse him bread. Do not give him any. It might make him stronger than you are. Then you would be repaid evil twice over for all the good you have done him. For the Most High himself detests sinners and will repay the wicked with a vengeance. Give to a good man and do not go to the help of a sinner. He, he cautions against helping any strangers. So this is, that gives you a little sense of the culture and the rivalry between Jewish people and the Samaritans at this time. It's difficult for us to compare and get a full sense of it, but that is a, is a partial taste. So Jesus begins this by saying that if you want to be a genuine neighbor, you have to be aware of your own pride and you need a new heart. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Question two, who is your neighbor? And this is a a. a potentially complex and broader discussion. But for this morning, I want to make this as clear and as simple and as relevant for today as possible. So let's define it this way. All people who are near you and in need. We all have neighborhoods. We all live in certain areas, dorms, streets, condos, townhouses. Everyone near you who is in need. Here's what Eleanor Roosevelt said many years ago. And this is This grabbed me, so let me just share this with you. Here's what she wrote. Where, after all, do human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any map of the world. Yet the world of the individual person, the neighborhood where he lives, in the school, the college, the factory, the farm, or the office where he works, such places where every man, woman, and child seek equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless those rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. Without a concerted concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for the progress in the larger world. It's easy to fall in love with a cause. It's very hard to be compassionate to people in need. You can rally people around fun little bracelets and t-shirts and really meaningful causes, but when it comes to actually just loving a person in your neighborhood, that is the call upon our lives. There is an important place for worldwide global causes. But Eleanor Roosevelt would encourage us by saying, start at home. Start in your neighborhood. That your life is to be an outpost of compassion, of kindness, of helping one another. The story continues by Jesus telling a short story about a man who takes a trip we looked for some photos. We, uh, nine months ago when our family went to Israel, I was quite curious about this road. And it is, um, it is a steep road. It is jagged, and there are parts of it where bandits could hide out. It is real. I know many of you have been there. If you haven't, go. It's great. You can go visit Jericho. You can visit Jerusalem, and you can go and sit down the side of a road where this parable is going to take place. And so Jesus begins this way, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is a steep downhill road, still men walking with goats and sheep like they have for thousands of years. And then he says that a man fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite does the same thing. So here you've got two professional guys, two professional pastors, two professional religious people who are to be examples and models of compassion. Ignore him. They walk away. And what's interesting is when you read and study this passage, there are all kinds of reasons that, that scholars and theologians come up with about why they ignored him. But I came across a a, a short, and I'll read you a short part of it. The last speech, the last sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave, he includes this passage. And he talks about this, and it's, it's quite interesting. What happens is often is the more Bible scholar you tend to be is you start thinking about like Jewish laws and dead people and you shouldn't be near them and you're clean and unclean. And he says something a little bit different. And let me just share it with you. It's kind of interesting because I think it's a little bit more relevant. He says this. This was um, his last speech that he was giving in support of sanitation workers who were on strike. And he says this, quote, Now you know we use our imagination a great deal to determine why the priest and Levite did not stop. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It is possible that those men were afraid. That they came across this scenario where they had seen a man who was beaten and half dead. And they did not want to put themselves at risk. He says this quote again, And you know it is possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers are still around. They wondered if their lives were going to be a threat. And look how he changes the questioning. This is meaningful. He says this, quote, And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was this, If I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? And I think that's the question we ask too often when we don't want to put ourselves out of something that's comfortable. When we want to stay in our comfort zone, we don't want to ask this question. If I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? And here's what Martin Luther King Jr. says. But then the good Samaritan came by and he reverses the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And I wonder if we are even willing to ask that question. If you do nothing, what will happen to your neighbor? So how do we become a neighbor? How do we become a helpful and good neighbor? I think the starting point is being willing to ask and answer that question. While we don't live in a part of Los Angeles that is dangerous and people are not at risk of being beaten and robbed on a regular basis as they were during this time, there are other ways and other things that we need to be thoughtful about of what it means to become a neighbor. So let's just make some observations about the Samaritan. So again, remember, the Samaritan, the despised, the looked down upon... Samaritan is the hero of the story. Beginning verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where he saw him. And here's the key word, he has compassion. It's a very interesting Greek word. Sometimes we, uh, you'll, you'll hear people say... Um, uh, the word guts, like it's this internal feeling like it, it that it wasn't just some superficial, shallow thing. Um, like let's go make a t-shirt in honor of this person. Let's, let's do something meaningful deep within him. And it says this, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to him and, and take took care of him. The next day, um, took out money, gave it to the innkeeper. Really significant and interesting um, series of things that he does there. That There's some really provocative and thoughtful um, writing that has been done on that. And I'm not going to focus specifically on that this morning. I'm going to focus on a few other things. But so let's start with this way. How do you become a neighbor? Willingness to slow down and stop. I don't know how many, I don't know when this started. Maybe, it was, I don't know, many years ago. But the word busy, it's like it just, it's nonstop. It's almost kind of comical now. Everyone's busy all the time. But I think the question is this. Are you busy doing the wrong things? Just doing irrelevant, stupid things. Like that, for me, like it doesn't count anymore. Like saying you're just busy all the time doing the wrong things becomes irrelevant if we ignore our neighbors something is not quite right something is out of alignment if we're not willing to at least be aware of people who have needs in our neighborhoods learning to ask the right questions learning to understand human needs what are what are human needs One of the most interesting places you can go to study about human needs is Genesis chapter three, which is where you find the fall of of mankind, of humanity, when sin enters the world. And let me just share with you four different ways in which humanity begins to break apart and tear apart from Genesis chapter three. We won't turn there this morning, but I'll highlight it. Genesis chapter three says this. That we are created to be dependent upon God. That that is how God God designed all of us. That we are to be dependent people. And that when sin enters the world, one of the primary ways that it shows itself is being independent. That we want to function independent of God. We don't want God telling us what to do. And then here's what happens. There's a breakdown and from Genesis chapter 3, here's some ways that life breaks down. It says this there is a psychological breakdown. That there is a high, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 10 talks about hiding and shame. Hiding and shame. I'll share with you something I don't think I've ever done. I don't think I've ever done this. I, and I, but I'll do it quickly. I had a dream. And, and I've never shared a dream before, so I don't know why. I told Karen and my wife, and I think that's it. But you know how dreams are really kind of funny, kind of super goofy, funny, and odd, and weird? But then there, I think there's a, maybe a point to it. Maybe this is the, my first and only dream that I'll have that has maybe a point. <laughs> but I, Okay, here's the funny part. I had a dream that a family friend from Little League, a Little League parent that we've known for years, the couple came to us and said, Brian, can you please take my mom? The, the woman said, Can you please take my mom to like Portland? Now, this is like taking place in Washington. And I'm like, If you really need me to take your mom to Portland, I'll take your mom to Portland. And yes, we do. Okay. Somewhere along the way, I lost her. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. When you're in seminary, of all the things they say, don't lose humans. Like, don't, I took a class on this. Don't lose the mother-in-law, right, or whoever it is. Don't, you can't lose people. I come back, and they were like, well, how's my mom? And I'm like, oh, she's great. She's great. And in my dream, I just kept lying about it. You know why? I was so embarrassed. I'm like, how do you lose somebody? And then she's probably dead. She's, like, dead in, in the side of, like, a, a, a rest stopper somewhere. And, like, and what woke me up, I'll tell you, there's two things that woke me up. Guilt and shame woke me up from that dream. Because I was, like, how, how do I, first of all, like, how does this even happen? And then number two, why would I keep lying about it? I kept lying in the dream about it. And here's the thing. There's a lot of talk about mental health and being well. And I will tell you that shame and guilt will ruin you. And that if any of you are here this morning and you can benefit from a silly, crazy dream because you're holding on to sin that is leading you to guilt and shame, today is the day to be free from it. You are not meant to live with guilt and shame, you are meant to embrace the forgiveness that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. And you will have a breakdown. There will be an alienation. When, when it begins with spiritual alienation and it leads to a mental or psychological alienation, there's a breakdown. And guess what happens next? According to Genesis chapter 3, there is a social alienation. Adam and Eve blame each other. People can't get along. It's very difficult to get along with another human being. And all of this begins with a spiritual unraveling of an unwillingness to be dependent upon God. That we would rather be dependent so, spiritual breakdown, psychological breakdown, social breakdown. Genesis chapter 3 talks about a physical breakdown. That you must work hard in the toil of the earth. And so, people people struggle with this. So, I'm not asking you to, to look around for people lying on the side of the road. That might happen once in a while. But what I'm asking you to be aware about is that people are hurting, people are lonely, people struggle with guilt and shame, people struggle with getting along. And so you can be a neighbor by being aware that every human being has needs and that there are people that are in desperation because of their alienation from God. Jesus continues the story and finishes it verse 37, he says this. He said, oh, excuse me, verse 36. Jesus asked the lawyer, the Bible scholar, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Couldn't even utter the word the Samaritan because of such disdain. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Likewise. So when I say that we exist as a church for others, that means that we exist as a community of people who have first personally experienced the grace of God, that our pride has been removed, that we have humbly come before Jesus and recognize our need for him. And then once that happens, there is an empowering, there is an internal change that happens to your heart That pride is removed and you're willing to get down with people, to love people, to be with them in a way that helps mend hearts, helps mend marriages and families, that functions as a friend for people. There is a simplicity to this when you remember the words of Eleanor Roosevelt and says that it starts right here at home. It starts in your home, in your neighborhood, where you live that we are to be a place of grace and mercy and compassion. The world is starving for compassion. And we offer that through the, through the life and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you this morning. Thank you that you have healed our own hearts. I pray that you would help each of us open our eyes to people who are in need, people who are hurting, people who are lonely, people who need help. Jesus, I pray you'd help us to be people who go beyond just words, but we would be people of action, that we would take action and and be proactive, people who take initiative with compassion and kindness. Pray Pray for our neighbors right here in the street, that your grace would touch them and love them.